The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, the week on The Right Hook here at Newstalk is coming to an end with me, George Hook, and we've got some of the outstanding items of today's show that you can listen to just in case you miss them. Uh, well, before Michael Graham arrives at 5.30 with stories of battles of Gettysburg, etc., I thought we'd cut to the real chase, which is this weekend and, of course, the centenary of 1916. And I just thought we'd have a chat with three people whose opinion I value. Uh, the lecturer at the Department of Geography at Maynooth University, Claire McGing, Yunan O'Halpin, Professor of Contemporary History at Trinity College Dublin, and, of course, former Fine Gael politician, but in Importantly for this discussion, chair of the expert advisory group on commemorations, Morris Manning, you're all very welcome. Thanks, George. Um, we might actually talk about this weekend, Morris. What, what's happening for people listening? Well, in- this weekend, in many ways, is the icing on the cake of what's been going on and will go on because there are so many things. But this weekend is the ceremonial, really when I suppose the state on behalf of all of us pays tribute to the people who died uh, in 1916 and indeed in, in, in other conflicts around then. So it will be a great occasion. Let's hope the weather keeps good with uh, the and these things are always very well done by our defence forces. Yeah, Professor Halpin, who's next to me here, thinks that the 50th anniversary, don't you, you think wasn't great and you're expecting much better things to the centenary celebrations. I, 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 I didn't say that at all. Well, you did in a guarded moment I over remember, a competition. I remember the uh, 50th anniversary. I was, we were away at Easter. But in fact, I remember hearing from, from an old Republican communist one of the leading terms, she was at it and how terrific she thought it was. Oh, really? And the jets coming down low over O'Connell Street and so on. And I was green with envy that this uh, wonderful woman, but protagonist of an Ireland-USSR alliance, uh, that she, she, who had a very strong Republican background, she nevertheless oh, actually right. thought it was great. OK, let's cut to the actual weekend and stuff. It's interesting here to all three of you that... Um, from my generation, like we swallowed it wholesale, Morris Manny, but you're kind of almost my generation. Uh, we swallowed it wholesale, what we were told. And there were certain things like women were by and large, apart from the Countess, were kind of written out of it. It was essentially a totally Catholic thing. They were all saying the rosary and they were all heroes and there were bad guys and good guys. Isn't that fair to say how we were taught it? Yeah, and and I mean, you were talking to Yunan there about 50 years ago, but that was very much of its time and it was very one dimensional. There was one true faith and that was Irish nationalism. There was one tradition being remembered. Uh, And it was very much that this was an inevitable part of our history. Today, it's very different. And um, there is an understanding today of just how complex it is, how the different traditions. Uh, it's We're also very conscious today it's a decade of centenaries. It isn't just one event. So it does bring in great new emphasis on the role of women and women getting the vote for the first time. But the part that individual women 
played. And that's all being rediscovered by a great crop of really fine new women historians. Uh, but th- there, there's the, the social side, the, uh, the, 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 the uh, lockout in 1913. But also, George, there's the memory of the Irish party. John Redmond and what they had achieved and they sort of, in historic terms, in glorious end that they came to in the 1918 election. Yet they retained the loyalty and affectionate memories of a lot of Irish people even to this day. You helped me segue to Claire McGang about women being written out of it. Um, do you do you have a conspiracy theory behind this or do you just think that uh, right up to the 50s, 60s, 70s, like we, we didn't, we saw women as hewers of wooden drawers of water, kind of, and we didn't see them as soldiers or anything like that. Do you think it was that? That it was kind of innocent rather than deliberate. Well, women were certainly written out of the history of this period when, when it was written, you know, relegated to a footnote or to a page or whatever yeah. of the main books. But I suppose there's a number of issues here. Um, the first is that the position that women took um, when the Free State was established was one that was very, very different from that that had been aspired for them in the proclamation where it spoke of Irish men and Irish women having equal opportunities um, and so on. And yes, women did get the vote and they got the vote under the Free State Constitution in 1922. Um, but other than that, there was a series of reactionary legislation introduced by the new government in the 20s and 30s. As an example, women were exempt from jury service. They were barred from sitting higher civil service exams. Um, contraception and so on was explicitly banned in 1935. And there was a number of reasons for this, but one of the main, main reasons was that there were six women TDs elected in the second all election in 1921 and all six of those women voted against the Anglo-Irish Treaty. And there was very much a perception at that time by male elites as a consequence that women were too inflexible or they were too indoctrinated for political life. And that meant that essentially they were locked out of the early years of the free state. So I do think there is certainly a factor for there in terms of their public life and that can partially explain that legislation that came afterwards. Uh, economics was also a factor. So issues around women um, being blocked from the marriage bar and work and so on. That was essentially a way to try and bring down male unemployment really. After the civil war and so on, male unemployment and unemployment more broadly was at a high. And finally I suppose we can't get away from this discussion without talking about the role of the Catholic Church which is as we know its position strengthened in the early years of the Free State and certainly had a big role to play in the position that women yeah. took. Union, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Catholic Church became incredibly powerful, but when you look at the people in the GPO and so on, and the whole Church of Ireland involvement, the number of people who were Church of Ireland, it's amazing how they they very quickly were sidelined. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't say sidelined. No. We have to be careful. I mean, right. Bulmer Hobson is in, is in many ways the maker of the of the Irish Revolution, who's, who's a, a Northern Quaker. Yeah. Right, Ernest Bly not only takes part. In fact, he's one of the few people in 1915 who's actually explicitly sanctioned by the British government. Uh, Ernest Bly is, you know, a Northern Presbyterian, not Church of Ireland, uh, and he plays a prominent part uh, in the revolution. And then he becomes uh, a notoriously tight-fisted Minister for Finance in the 1920s. Um, yeah, you have other people like um, uh, Sean Lester, for example, who becomes a very senior Irish diplomat, and so on. So I think we've got to be careful. 
uh, just in separating two things. And one is the drift towards conservatism, which isn't peculiar to Ireland after the First World mm. War. In areas of morality, control of dance halls, all sorts of things. It's not only in Ireland that there's a tightening, that there's a sort of a revulsion. It happens in other countries as well, not in relation to contraception so much. If you look at countries like France, when did women get the vote in France? 1947 or something? When did they get the vote in Switzerland? I can't remember, but it was much more recent. So we have to we have to have a nuanced view of why women, in a sense, were inverted commas relegated, uh, as we would see it now, to, to second second class status, and we mustn't project contemporary values and understandings on the past. Yeah, Morris Manning, um, or my my beloved Cork, of course, at, at the end of of the War of Independence. I want to stay with the Rising, but uh, there were a lot of burnings and so on of of Protestant homes and so on. Uh, the 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 thing though in nineteen. 16, when we're there at this weekend, this thing about that in film, in in everything, that the bulk of the population was opposed to the rising. That's certainly the bulk of the Dublin population. Is that right? Well, that's absolutely the case. Um, you mentioned, George, the Cork and the War of Independence. And this is one of the things, I mean, one of the things that the Committee Union and myself are both on. One of our great hopes was that everything that happens would be underpinned by authenticity, that it happened. And one of the great things we've seen over the past couple of years and will see is the opening up of archives and the emergence of a whole uh, coterie of new scholars who were looking at what happened. And I think there's been a huge mindset change in the population that whereas, George, when we were starting off, people took sides on 1916 or on the War of Independence based on their political allegiance. The younger generation see it as history. They want to know what happened. They have their own heroes, but based on the evidence. And and I think that's been the great thing. There is an opening of minds and a huge availability of new material and a great emphasis also on local history where people try to find out what happened to their own families, to their own localities and make up their minds on that. Well, interesting. I was driving to, to near my Milton Golf Club this morning and there's a big poster up there commemorating a volunteer. Now, I mean, I've never heard of him or anything, but he, he obviously was a Dundrum yes. person who died. I think that's tremendous. That it's fabulous. Day, yeah. And even in Maynooth, for example, there's a big play around those men who marched along the canal and to join them in Dublin. So these figures who, men and women, who were forgotten about, we only looked at the big figures up to relatively recently, have really been given a new, I suppose, sense of, of light. But another very heartening thing, I think, in the last few weeks was on proclamation Day when the children wrote their own proclamations. Firstly, the love and sense of history a lot of these children had, and particularly for someone who's very interested in the political consciousness and awareness of young girls. Um, but all children in particular, I think it was heartening. And also the type of society they want. You know, they spoke about homelessness, they spoke about equality and, you know, the type of future. I think that has been one of the most heartening things of the pa- of the, the state's role in the commemorations. But can I come in here, particularly in relation to Dublin City Council? I suggest this in three years ago and of course they all looked appalled. Uh, Dublin City Council was responsible above all for the citizens of Dublin and something around 255 uh, citizens of Dublin, civilians, died during the rebellion. About 20% of them women are female, right? And really, uh, I, I do think it's a pity 
that there is there isn't some reflection on that that there isn't some more effort at, uh, 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 to, to 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 mark their loss and some more effort to explore what it must have been like um, I was at the Plough and the Stars recently and uh, I mean in some ways that brings back just what it must have been like for for families very often living in one room tenements where now uh, their 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 street had become a battlefield where for a week if you had small children what did you do how did you feed them how did you keep them quiet did you let them out they might get shot did you go and get food a woman called Maggie Naylor coming from near Ring's End whose husband was killed on the same day on the Western Front she had four or five kids she was born but I think only one might still have been alive and she's shot dead uh, by somebody down near uh, near uh, Beggar's Bush and so on these these are these are real stories too and I think it's it's unfortunate there hasn't been some reference uh, to the to the civilian cost if you like other than in relation to atrocities British atrocities as in particularly in North King Street the shooting of Sheehy Skeffington and the others in Portobello and so on I think we are getting there Eun and I think there is the emergence of studies and it'll take time but you're right on the main point that we do need to focus in on the individuals and I've the, I'll have the great pleasure of uh, speaking at the opening of the Bagnellstown Memorial to the uh, event in a few weeks time and Father Albert Bibby who was a capuchin who went around to giving absolution he's, he's from Bagnellstown and Nurse Keo is from Lachlan Bridge and this can be emerged right across the country where people have found about their local connections and that makes it very real for the people of, of those towns and villages. McNeil Union, you were listening there to Morris Manning, but but you know helping from from Department of History and Trinity. Um, can you explain to us about why it only became? Why did McNeil cancel it, and then it went on in Dublin? Why was there this extraordinary? Like they spent presumably years trying to organise it. Why did it suddenly become a shambles? McNeil had not been trying to organise a rebellion. Is the is the first point right? Uh, and and um, the rebellion was organised behind his back, okay. And he only was told that at very short notice, and he told that German aid. He was told that German aid aid was coming, okay. When when the news came of the capture of an armed ship and of a mysterious stranger down in Kerry, uh, then McNeil issued the countermanding order because he thought it would be a catastrophe uh, to to have a rebellion without any foreign military aid as had been promised, uh, and and in those circumstances he issued the countermanding order, and that's why there wasn't very much more widespread violence. It's probably also why, and this is a mercy, why there why. Extraordinarily, there was no trouble in Belfast because I still cannot understand. I know why the Irish volunteers were told there mustn't be a shot fired in Ulster, but the Ulster volunteers and loyalists and so on, why they didn't turn on their Catholic neighbours as they were prone to do, as we know, as I in 1920 and 1922 they did. Why, why Ulster remained so quiet is, I think, for, 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 for Catholics and nationalists, is an enormous mercy. The the issue, um, Claire McGang, your your gender studies is part of your stuff in in Maynooth University at the Department of Geography. One of the things because uh, it's really interesting for somebody like me, like I've had seventy years to be thinking about this, and it's now my declining years. Thanks to the work that's been done for this commemoration, I'm really studying it a much greater deal. And Morris Manning's point about archive material and so on is fantastic. The other thing that's coming out, apart from women, a lot of these women were also in relationships with 
other women and like the whole thing about there had to be a gay community you assume also amongst men and so on nobody was ever talking about that and in a way it's only now or it appears to me only now that this is coming out. Yeah, there seems to be, I mean, firstly on the archives, I think the witness statements that were released a number of years ago have been absolutely fabulous and they are all publicly available and are well worth looking at. There are hundreds and hundreds of recollections there. But no, there seems to be, a, you're, absolutely I agree, there seems to be a lot more focus on women but also on lesbian women, um, less to a lesser extent perhaps on the gay men that would have been involved but there's much more of, a, of an emphasis this time on diversity um, and, and I suppose the diff, these who these people were. Um, interestingly too on the backgrounds of those women, um, uh, not uh, the women who got involved in 1960 in the 1916 Easter Rising but also in the subsequent struggle afterwards they were women from various types of backgrounds. They were educated women, they were not so educated, they were urban, they were rural they were married, they were single you know they had different levels of profession so a huge diversity of women got involved and again that is something that I suppose has been getting a little bit more airtime in recent times. Yeah. What about socially here because Claire McGing has raised it you know about wealthy people not wealthy people because in the O'Casey play there's the woman from Rathgar do you remember and she comes down like and she's totally confused about what's going on so Rathgar was obviously seen as a kind of centre of wealth and unionism and so on but when you look at a lot of these people I had um Richard Mulcahy on, in the programme once like and he was talking about his family keeping chickens in Rathmines People who later on became very successful and you could say sort of wealthy, but they weren't wealthy at the time of of the rebellion. Is that right? Like, say, Cosgrave or or Mulcahy or people like that. No, Cosgrave was a publican. Mulcahy was a medical student, I think. Or or was he an engineer? Post office. Yeah, um, working in the post office. But a huge number of teachers and junior clerks, very bright people in the British Irish civil service. Uh, But it was that class largely. There weren't all that many working class people as such. uh, And there weren't many of the operations. No, few from well off families, but but not, not many, mainly driven by the new emerging young Catholic, Catholic educated coming from Catholic backgrounds. Well, you would have had people like, obviously, Sitson Army had, had a, a, a distinctly, if you like, working class Dublin Dublin character. And to some extent, I think the FINA did, 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 did work in, in, in Dublin and one or two other larger towns to bring in kids who wouldn't have been part of the Boy Scouting tradition or whatever and who wouldn't have been from privileged or even middle class backgrounds. But we have to look at rural Ireland as well, the, the Ireland that didn't rise for various reasons. And there I think you'll find on the, on the women, I say women, but I, I would have to say female because a lot of people like one of my grandmothers who married at 18, uh, that, that largely took, you, took lots of lots of thousands of women out of further activism, if you like, because because they got married and they had families and so on. And we, 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 ha- we have to uh, be mindful of, mindful of that. It was possible for a man to marry and have children and leave all the work at home, if you like. It certainly wasn't possible. A kind of a similar parallel actually today into we, we still know the difficulty some women have balancing Absolutely. private lives and public yeah. life. Yeah. If you've just tuned in, we're looking at 1916 with a chat uh, between Claire McGing from Department of Geography and Maynooth, Professor Ian Halpin from History and Trinity College Dublin, and of course, uh, Morris Manning, who is chairman of the expert group set up by the Taoiseach on commemorations. 
you mentioned uh, I'm, I'm going to a dinner um, in Bermuda of all places uh, a 16 rising dinner our hearts go out to you <laughs> yeah but interestingly what started off Morris Manning as um, a 16 rising commemoration they want to now incorporate the sum into that. You mentioned this decade of commemorations. While this is going on in Dublin, the war on the Western Front is going on, and Paddy Hart's great work in, in putting together all the people who died. It's a huge number of Irish people in the British Army. You know, there's been a sea change here on that, George, and there has been a very active programme of commemorations dealing with uh, the First World War right from, from the very outset and very close ties between the Irish government and the British government and you had the ceremonies in, in Flanders Fields and the yeah. Taoiseach appeared with uh, Cameron. Um, but what, sorry, did returning British soldiers then, when they came back in the end of the world? They came back to a very cold Ireland. There I was, was no welcome for them. And no. I remember as a young fellow growing up in Bagnallstown seeing these fellows standing on the street corner. They were literally corner boys. They had been in the British Army. They came home. Now, the British Army built good houses for a lot of them, but they were living there, but they were never able really to get back into Irish society. They never got work again. Maybe some of them weren't able to work. But certainly there was no recognition of what they had done. And to a certain extent, they were almost social outcasts. But 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 the, the women then, uh, who their, their, their wives, they, of course, were receiving the, the, the wages effectively of the soldier husbands. So when this when this revolution starts, the women are obviously pretty upset about that because they might they, they could see themselves losing the the money or whatever. Is that right? Is that what is that why there was the negativity towards the rising? Well, but, but also they were, they were this 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 fight was started in the streets where these people lived, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and there were bullets flying later on, the buildings going on fire and so on. There were people bursting in uh, to take over your house or to search your house or, as in the case of North King Street, to drag away your young men and murder them and rob them. So, well, you know, I think it's understandable that, that the people, it, however, whatever their politics, how outraged they would have been and how terrified they and would the have been. The in the Irish Times and the Irish Independent, they were fairly bloodthirsty. They reflected what most people thought. And it was only bit by bit as public opinion changed that there was an acceptance. And even then a very reluctant acceptance. Well, I think so, Morris, because if you look at where the where the rebels chose to fight, if you look, for example, at the number of the Rotunda is a maternity hospital, how far is that from the GPO? The Coombe is just across the road from Marabone Lane and so on. Hollow Street's around the corner from uh, Boland's Mills. Uh, you've, you've, you've regular hospitals in, 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 uh, in Stevens Green on Harker Street. An actual hospital St. Jay, the South Dublin Union is taken over uh, by rebels as, as a chosen emplacement. So there are difficulties there uh, and as, as to where they chose uh, to, to, to carry out their military operations and where they chose to make this act of defiance. And certainly some of the leaders, I don't say all, but certainly Pierce wanted in a sense a bit of street theatre. But I think it's a pity he didn't pick, pick uh, more deserted streets and the, the dense, inner, dense inner city Dublin. But if uh, I'm going to come to Claire again, but Morris, um, I, I don't know whether you're the army strategist in this trio or not. But if it had been a national uprising, would the result have been different, or would it have just been meant more casualties? And at the end of a week or two, it would have been all over anyway. 
It's an interesting question. It would have meant more casualties. It would have meant that the British had to deploy even more forces into Ireland, which they could ill afford, in their view, uh, from where they were. So uh, it's one of these what might, what ifs, George. And uh, I suspect that, well, I don't suspect, but I don't know. All right. Claire McGing, on on the issue of women, I don't want to compartmentalise you here. It's just purely women sort of topics. But... There, there, Markovic is the first woman elected to the House of Commons, but she doesn't take her seat. And forevermore, Lady Astor is seen as the, the thing. In Britain, because of the suffragette movement and, and all that sort of thing, was, there a, was Britain a better place for women than Ireland at that time, would you think or not? Olivia O'Leary actually has a column in The Guardian looking at this very issue today about whether or not would Irish women have been better off under British rule, quite provocatively, but an interesting... Um, I don't know is the honest answer, but if we look at Ireland before 1916 and before the, the Free State established in 1922, there are a series of reforms introduced by the British administration to better women. You know, they're giving off local government offices, they're given the right to sit on juries, they're because of other kind of broader social changes, they are given more educational opportunities, more a pension, exactly, more employment opportunities and certainly the free state takes some of that away from them. There is no doubt about it. Now, whether or not had we stayed, you know, hypothetically under British rule, would women be in a different position today? I, I really don't okay. know. I think but, be careful because yeah. John Redmond and John Dillon were very clear that the level of social spending in a home rule Ireland could not be maintained at the level that it was as as, as went well under West. Reflective of the Irish Parliamentary Party's view, actually, John Dillon once said that giving the vote to women would mean the ruin of Western civilization <laughs> itself. So okay. you know, Sinn Féin in comparison were you know utopians. Morris Manning, the the. The situation of pensions, because remember, like I remember when I came to Dublin, the evening press used to have all the meetings of the old IRA association. So, as you know, there were, there were a lot of them around. But wasn't the pensions thing a bit of a scandal that like some got it and some didn't and all that sort of thing? Do we handle that very well or not? Eventually, it was handled well. I mean, there was a board set up, uh, and that's one of the great boons for history today, for the writing of history, because people had to prove where they were involved. This was cross-checked against others, and the pensions were awarded. And there weren't great pensions for the most part. So did and people can, suffer by being... Can, can I interrupt there? Sorry. Yeah. Ten years ago, I wrote an op-ed piece in the, in the Business Post saying there were 17,000 files about pensions for, relating to the War of Independence and so on and the rising and they should be released. Of course, I was completely wrong. There are over 300,000 files. Yeah. And anyone who's been through even a small fraction of them and as I have been released. will say that overwhelmingly they are actually administered very fair, fairly. Yes. Only about something over one in six of applicants actually got a pension. And this wasn't necessarily to do with how many towns you shot or anything it was to do with the condition of service effectively it was a model where you you were getting compensated if you'd lost income by participation okay. in the War of Independence one of the great sources for history today is born out of pensions yeah. the, one of the great legacies of it all and I think Bertie Ahern should be recognised yeah. he, he took the decision to have these records digitised right. and I think that should be remembered I, my thanks to you all Claire McGing uh, lecturer of geography at Manu 
Maynooth University, Unlaw Halpine from um, Irish History at Trinity College Dublin. Of course, Morris Manning, uh, Chairman of the Expert Advisory Group on Commemorations. Uh, my thanks to all three of you. And uh, uh, a lot of people saying they're enjoying this enormously. Pity we can't go on. And I enjoyed it too. It's a shame that my two grandsons who have a very uh, sketchy view of the whole issue of the rising emergency here. It might do them good. And uh, it's an extraordinary weekend, and I think we all should make the effort, and particularly in bringing uh, our younger people to it for a day that I think the four of us mightn't be here. If we were here today, it might be in very different circumstances. But then, of course, I also believe that um, if old Churchill wasn't around, we might be carrying out this conversation in German. But we might have a debate on that on another day. My thanks to my guest. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, tomorrow evening at the National Basketball Arena, there will be some more mixed martial arts, which apparently is Ireland's fastest growing sport. Um, many people uh, would be unhappy or uh, even mightn't enjoy the fact that there is a lot of extreme physical violence in it, more so, one would imagine, as a layman, than uh, standard professional boxing. I'm joined, however, by someone who has serious concerns about it. It's Professor Dan Healy, neurologist at Beaumont Hospital. Professor Healy, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. Now, neurologists work with the brain, isn't that so? That's right. So your concerns for this would be not necessarily the guy gets a broken rib or something, but rather that he may suffer some kind of brain trauma, is it? That's right, yeah. So, So I'm more concerned... I'm not even really that concerned about concussion. I mean, the, I would thought that there are 35 fighters taking part on that event, and uh, most of them will have significant head impacts, and I would say the majority would be concussed in some way or other. My concern is brain hemorrhage. And I've looked after three brain hemorrhages in Ireland over the last three years, directly related to cage fighting, and I really don't want to see another. And um, if I could just make one small correction, George, if such a thing is allowed. It wasn't quite cage fight. It's not quite all MMA on this event. It's cage fighting with many different codes, uh, including a code called cage tie, which is a combination of MMA and cage fighting. The problem with this for a layman is that it's exactly that. It has all different kind of manifestations. With, uh, like, with when when we go to rugby, soccer, or Gaelic football, we know we know what we're going to see and we know what the the laws and regulations are. This seems to be uh, anything goes, depending on what you call it. Well, so if it's MMA, there's a, a prescribed set of rules. Um, but you're right. So the actual rules are entirely at the whim of the promoter. And the safety at this moment in time is also entirely at the whim of the promoter and obviously the host, which in this case is Basketball Ireland. And you referred to professional boxing uh, earlier, which is a sport which has commensurate risk. It's also very dangerous. But professional boxing has, has learned the hard way. Um, they, you may recall back in the 1990s, Michael Watson, a very famous super middleweight who was fighting in White Hart Lane, 
and um, suffered a subdural brain hemorrhage, which was poorly managed. He didn't get to theatre in time, and he is now left with permanent physical disability. They managed to save his life. The consequence of that and the legal action that was taken subsequent to it against the British Boxing Board of Control, who weren't ultimately, they didn't have insurance, almost closed professional boxing down in the UK. And, and it didn't. But emerged from that it were a set of standards that basically minimize any avoidable injury or death. So a fighter in advance will have brain scans, will have a cold light of day assessment by a medical doctor, you know, well before the fight, will have to have an eye examination, will have to be tested for HIV and hepatitis, heart tests. And on the night of the fight, will there will be six or seven doctors ringside okay. with, with anaesthetists and every possible aforethought made on to how to manage the unconscious fighter with an evolving brain hemorrhage and how to get them to the hospital, in, in the case of Dublin, Beaumont Hospital, that will operate and save their lives. That's right. not taking place in Basketball Ireland's event. All right. Well, um, there is, of course, for many people who are involved in, in trying to make sports safer, very often there's an element to shoot the messenger. But but we went, we got on National Bas- Basketball Arena. They passed us on to Cage Kings, um, who are the promoters. We offered Cage Kings to come on the show. They, they, they didn't decline. They just said, we'll send you a statement. Um, you're not very popular with them. Uh, that's perfectly clear from their statement but but they do say they have all competitors are following safety guidelines uh, set by the International Sport Kickboxing Association there will be medicals before the event and uh, post fight medicals on the day of the, the event um, and but what they are also saying is that uh, you are uh, using their words blatant scare tactics uh, to get the event cancelled. No, so I certainly don't want the event cancelled. That's not my motive here at all. Uh, I want the event to be safe and made as safe as possible. I don't want it cancelled at all. I have no particular issue with consensual adult autonomous behaviour and it's not illegal. Nothing here is illegal. I want the young men and women, the brave young fighters who are meticulous in the way in which they prepare for this, in their healthy living, in their going to bed at night, not drinking, etc. They're the best of our country, George. I want them to have the same safety standards that a professional boxer would have, and I don't want us to in MMA or in cage fighting, learn the hard way. And uh, right. So what are they lacking? Given that you're, given that you're concerned, um, what do you think they're lacking in, in, the, in the National Basketball Arena tomorrow night? Because they are in, again, their statement, we are indeed following all safety guidelines, including the provision of proper qualified doctors, paramedics, and post-fight medical care. Well, so the first thing is that they should be able to provide verifiable evidence for that. And I'm involved in this board, well, more particularly MMA, which is one of the codes that will take place. And the word of mouth for this particular event is that it's really, really unsafe. I know that the fighters on that fight will not be protected in the same way or even close to the standards that um, the professional uh, boxers or 
professional UFC MMA fighters, for example, uh, are uh, entitled okay. to. No, sorry, my guest is is Professor Dan Healy, neurologist at Beaumont uh, Hospital. The problem here is, um, with respect, Professor Healy, is the evidence is is largely anecdotal here. In a sense, you you know or believe there aren't going to be anybody there who's good enough. Cage Kings are saying we're absolutely confident that all the people are there uh, are going to be good enough. Now we have an interesting history on this whole issue of brain injury and brain hemorrhage, the British Boxing Board of Control, the World Boxing Association, the National Football League that runs American football. In in the great debates, they all said, you know, there's nothing happening, we're in great shape and we have the best of medical attention until it was proved otherwise. But so far, we don't have any proof of such. And, and the only way we get proof will be if there's a tragedy and we don't want that. Or perhaps your show might want to send a representative on Saturday night to see it for your own eyes. Well, I, we would, but we wouldn't be able to. We wouldn't be able to check the doctors. I mean, all you guys seem uh, divine to us, you know. Yeah. But but it, right. another question: You say you are part of this group. It's really interesting. You're part of the Safe MMA Ireland group which is a not-for-profit organization aimed at improving safety standards for MMA fighters in Ireland. Is that right? So, yeah, so, so this, is, this is not a governing body or anything like that. This is simply a group of doctors, fighters. Ashley Daly, who's a USC fighter in Ireland, is, is the, one of the fighters on it. Uh, promoters, coaches who have concerns about safety in MMA and there's a real one of the difficulties that faces MMA and I'm talking now specifically about MMA and not all types of cage fighting is that it's heavily criticized for being dangerous but it's not being helped to become safe the sport is legal and it's not about to be made illegal anytime too soon it's as you said earlier the most popular fastest growing sport in Ireland now I think in fact if you try to ban it there'd be an insurrection given the week that's in it, you probably need to lock the doors of the GPO. It's not going to be made illegal. What is, therefore, really important is that the sport, and within the sport, there's a real desire to make it safer. Within the, That the sport needs to have some of the governance, some of the protection, and perhaps recognition. And I would like the our sports council who don't recognise MMA but, currently, but, I would like yeah. them to recognise it. And the reason why I'd like them to recognise it is because then the sport would have the responsibilities of all of their fights Okay. Now, my guest is Professor Dan Healy, neurologist at Beaumont Hospital, who is deeply concerned about the National uh, uh, Basketball Arena tomorrow night, the Cage Kings promotion of uh, mixed martial arts, cage tie in MMA gloves, all sorts of stuff that I have to confess. I don't know a lot about. Can I get back to safe MMA Ireland? It's really interesting that there is a group of, of concerned people that you've just talked about. It, you want to make MMA safe in Ireland. Um, no matter how fast it grows, it's still pretty small. At the same time, nobody ever thought of setting up safe rugby Ireland or safe GAA Ireland or safe, safe soccer Ireland. Why, why did anybody feel there was a need to set up an organisation to make MMA safer? Nobody ever thought about it for other sports. Well, because the sport, George, has grown so quickly that it, it lacks the glue that, say, professional boxing has of 
you know, retired judges or retired millionaires who box to themselves at one time or other who are helping fund and helping the sport have a governing body. This would never happen in professional boxing. In fact, the basketball arena was to hold the uh, the boxing fight that was cancelled because of the shooting, uh, the tragic shooting recently in the Regency, and that event would be safe. The young men and women who would have fought on that would be all they would have to worry about is their opponent. They but, but, yeah, but we don't know, Professor. This is part of the problem here in yeah. this discussion. As you know, I'm very passionate about the whole issue yeah. of neurological problems in, in, in football in all its yeah. codes. Yeah. Um, the problem here is we don't know. We didn't know. We didn't know about American football until Dr. Romalu uh, eventually brought it to uh, the public uh, awareness. And only in the last couple of weeks, for the first First time in its history, the NFL has said that brain injury is now part of its sport. So, unfortunately, in the case of this, I don't know what we can do. George, Other we than do give know. you George, the air. Again, apologize for cutting across you, yeah. but we do know there there will be between there are thirty five fighters on this card. Between five and ten of them will be either unconscious or technically knocked out because of repeated blows to their brains. You can't. But I agree that that's unsafe. I mean, that's, uh, it's patently obvious. And um, going back to your, early, your earlier point about safe MMA and an attempt to try and make the sport, which is not illegal, make the sport more mainstream, that, in my opinion, is what's going to make the sport safer. Okay. Professor Healy, um, let me say one thing. I am no fan of the sport. I think it is horrific and it panders to the basest uh, uh, feelings in spectators. That that you could suggest to me that maybe uh, 10 young men or women will be rendered unconscious by repeated blows to the head uh, tomorrow night in the National Basketball Arena for fun, uh, to be honest, defies description. Uh, Professor Dan Healy, neurologist at uh, Boston Hall, uh, Hospital. And of course, 53106, because the texts are all, will already be flying in, and I'll read them to you just as soon as I get them. The Right Hook, with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic, with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to the Friday Right Hook with me, George Hook, and it's time for... Alison Spittle. Alison, welcome to the programme. Hi, thanks so much for having me, George. What are we talking about? Uh, I was going to talk about my day today because it's Good Friday. What what I've decided to do is I went shopping for some glasses today. Because it was Good Friday? Yeah, because that's the tradition, isn't it? I don't know. What? Shop for glasses? Yeah, can't eat meat and you shop for glasses. That's <laughs> the way it's All right. Now, mm. what kind of glasses are you shopping for? Um, well, I had to get my eyes tested because I was watching the telly the other day and I couldn't make out the letters on countdown, so I knew I had a problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I got my eyes tested again and they're after getting worse. They're after going from... She gave me some numbers. What was it? 2.5, my eyes are now, whichever that means, and I got a stigmatism. I know exactly what that Do I mean. you mean? Yeah. Do you know what that means? Yeah. So I've, uh, I'm short-sighted and I've got an astigmatism in both eyes. 
So I, I thought I knew what astigmatism was until someone asked me what it was and then I had to explain myself. And I don't think I do know. All right. <laughs> but I hope the glasses you're wearing aren't the ones you paid a lot of money for. No, they're not. They're not. I have to wait because my eyes, um, because because my prescription is a strange prescription. I've got a lazy eye as well yeah. that, uh, that I have to wait a few days for it to come through. So what you have to do here um, with these glasses, now you're going to get, I think, don't they call them turtle shell glasses or something? Turtle or? shell? I don't know. I'm considering getting the anti-glare bit of film on my uh, Oh, so lenses. that when the sun comes out, they go dark, you mean? Those uh, kind of ones? Oh, no. They're terrible, George. You ever see the people now? The people look like criminals with those glasses. Uh, they, they do. They're well, desperate. The other interesting thing that you're talking about your your glasses yeah. is they are a fashion item. Now, if you think of the 1940s or 50s, mm. Glasses were uh, very basic. Everybody the same kind of glasses. That's a very fashionable word you're using and there, George. the lazy eye syndrome mm. was the cure or, or attempted fix was to put a piece of sticking plaster over one over the the non lazy eye. Yeah. So they forced you to use the lazy eye. I had that when I was and, a kid, George. And all these yeah. people be going around Ireland with stick and plaster on their glasses. Yeah, like like bad pirates walking yeah. around the place. Yeah. But um, I found it I found it weird because um, when I was getting when I was trying on my glasses, all these different new glasses, I kept looking at myself, going, "Oh, this looks terrible." And it's only because I was actually wearing glasses. It wasn't because it wasn't because the glass. I I kept imagining if I put a new pair of glasses on, it would look like I wasn't wearing glasses, which I think is silly. Well, of course, you could presumably wear uh, contact lenses. I'm trying them now for the first time. Um, as soon as they've after ordering it in for me, so I'm gonna give it a go, George. I can only wear it for two hours the first time I try it. She's yeah, the the other thing, of course, you should consider is surgery. Laser eye surgery? No, any kind of surgery. I never had what laser surgery. Any kind of surgery? Well, like, I mean, the laser is kind of trendy. But yeah. the bulk of surgery is done with a knife. Oh, Lord. I, mean, I feel like James Bond if I was strapped to a chair and a laser is going into my eyes. You know, instead of like, do you expect to kill me? They'll go, no, I expect to blind you, Mr. Bond. You well, know? you've got your, uh, <laughs> we've got it all wrong, but I, I know what you mean. Do you know what I mean? Do yeah, you know what, well, I mean? what happened was uh, Bond says as the laser is heading towards his crown jewels. His crown the, jewels. <laughs> the, the Bond says, do you, I, you know, you don't expect me to talk. And Goldfinger says, No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. There we go. You should you should overdub some Bond scenes. Well, that the would be hilarious. The thing of dubbing is yeah. the fellow who played Goldfinger was a German actor. Yeah. And they dubbed him because his his accent was terrible. What what nationality was uh, Goldfinger supposed to be? What was he? Indeterminate. Indeterminate. What yeah. a country. They have that in the Olympics. Indeterminate. <laughs> anyway, yeah. what about Easter? What a, I don't know what I'm doing for Easter, George. I have I I basically feel do you know do you know when you know your birthday is coming up yeah. and you don't plan anything and then it's the week before and you go, oh, it's too late to invite friends or do anything cool. So I don't know what to do at all. I probably will go shopping for glasses again. That's my that's how I'm gonna celebrate your centenary now, getting my eyes. Fixed. Easter eggs? 
Oh, Easter eggs. Well, yeah, we were chatting about that. I do, do you know what, George? I have two drawers full of drink at the house at the moment and I'm considering going onto Twitter and selling them off today because it's what a very... What kind of drink? Uh, a bottle of vodka. I bought that for a wedding. So, and I didn't drink it because the food, I ate too much food and I went to sleep. <laughs> so I didn't stay up to have a good time. But I honestly, I feel like I've got shares in IBM and I've after seeing them after 50 years, they're like, oh, this is my chance now to, to make a bit of money. <laughs> Why selling off bottles of vodka? Yeah, well, not legally. I'd raffle it off. Isn't that how you get away with it in community centres? You no, buy a raffle ticket. Me. Like, don't. don't be asking me. <laughs> Uh, but well, you could go to uh, O'Connell Street for the celebrations or something. Well, I thought you were going to say for to drink the bottle of vodka. And I was like, no, George, I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm thinking of going to. I think I'll go to O'Connell Street and uh, check it out. What are you doing for the weekend, George? Uh, I'm not going to any celebrations. No. No, I'm going to go home and kind of talk to Ingrid. And I'm going to try a new trick talking to my wife. <laughs> Apparently it's recommended by all the marriage guidance counsellors. Oh, it is. A talk a day keeps the doctor away. You know, it's all good. It's like... Yeah. All right. Well, look, good luck with the glasses. <laughs> Thank and you. And or the contact lenses. I know. I hope I don't blind myself now, George. And or the vodka. <laughs> if you... If you drink the bottle of vodka, you won't need glasses. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On that uh, giggle, we'll depart. And Alison Spittle will giggle next week on The Right Hook Friday version. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hook with George Hook of a Friday, as they say, when I'm joined, as always, uh, by James Dempsey of Newstalk.com. So, uh, remember today, one meal and two collations? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and Stations of the Cross. I've actually been doing Lent and I haven't broken it yet this year, so it's been quite impressive. So you've done the Lenten fast? I've done my Lenten fast. Stations across today. At some point, yeah. I'll do my and best. And no drink. No drink. And no meat. And no meat. All right. Okay. I'm with you. <laughs> so is is that what we're talking about today in our weekly topic? I'm afraid not, George. We are okay. so a very hotly anticipated movie has come out today and it has been absolutely trashed by every critic who's seen it. And I'm going to see it later on at some point. But it is Batman versus Superman. And it is another big comic book adventure of of which we've had many in the last 10 years. But what is of interest of this one is that it is the very first time that we're going to see Wonder Woman on the big screen. Oh, really? So what do you know about Wonder Woman? Now, you see, the interesting thing is (laughs) that I know all about these characters because uh, the comics were my is what us kids read at that time. So we read Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, the Blackhawks, uh, Captain Marvel Jr., Mary Marvel. We did them all. Spider-Man, we did them all. Well, clearly then you know it, but... (laughs) Do you know anything about the creator of Wonder Woman? Because he has perhaps the most interesting backstory you would ever imagine. So his name was William uh, Moulton Marston and he was very much a wasp, you know, an American wasp, grew up in New England, 
wealthy family, went to Harvard. And while he was at Harvard, he sort of discovered that he had this very uh, deep fascination with women and women's suffrage. So this was around the beginning of the 20th century. Women's suffrage yes. or women generally? Uh, both, actually. We'll get on to that. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm keenly interested in women, but I'm not terribly interested in women's suffrage. But go on. Well, this was at a time when women didn't have the vote in the right. US. So there was a movement to give them the vote. And William Moulton Marson was very much at the head of this. And he graduated from Harvard, got a PhD in psychology and was one of sort of the first psychologists really to define psychology in the US. He then went on to invent the lie lie detection test and he has a very famous uh, American statute law based after him. It's called Fry versus the United States, which is um, this Supreme Court case in which he was represent he was called as an expert witness as a psychologist and nobody believed that he was an expert in the field which led to this now very commonly belie- held belief in American law that if you call an expert that expert has to be sort of regarded as an expert for them to, for their testimony oh I've been, I've been called as an expert witness in five cases what is your area of expertise? Rugby. Oh, okay. Well, that, that, I suppose that makes so sense. So I've been called in actions where an injured player has sued somebody. Okay. And well, I've been the, the expert well, witness. I, I suppose, given your profile, Fry versus United States, you, you, everyone <laughs> knows you. Hook versus United States. Yeah, because so, we're all in America. What happened then is William uh, sort of began this very strange polyamorous lifestyle where he hooked up with one of his students while married to another woman and as a as a, a group of three they raised four children between the two of them he fathered two children with both of them and his career as an academic went into massive decline because he his I suppose life while kept private was sort of known yeah. and not very well regarded so he was blacklisted yeah. by Harvard and Columbia and what happened then was in the 1940s um, an American comic publisher a man named uh, M.C. Gaines who published the precursor to what is DC Comics now yeah. Uh, he was reading an article in a magazine called Family Circle, written by a woman named Olive Byrne, in which she went to see the psychologist, William Moulton Marston, to ask him, is it acceptable to let children read comic books? Because at the time, comics were skyrocketing in, in publishing sales, but there was this conception that they were very damaging. Correct. And, and when we, when us kids were reading them uh, in the 40s and 50s, it was considered to be very damaging. I, I Well, it's rightly so. And... That's rightly so. (laughs) I mean, you are right to say that. (laughs) And then what happened was uh, Olive Byrne wrote this article in this magazine saying, oh, this psychologist said it's absolutely okay. He says that comic books are our folklore nowadays, that they are uh, very engaging for young people. And this Gaines man thought, well, you know what, I'm going to hire this William Moulton Marston to come in and be a consultant on all of my comic books. Little did he realise that Olive Byrne was one of the two women that uh, <laughs> he was consorting that he with. was consorting with so he was called in and he was uh, uh, Gaines asked or uh, Gaines asked him to sort of pitch an idea and he came up with this concept of you know you've got the you've got superman who's sort of regarded as kind of almost like a fascist you've got batman who carries a gun what you need is a woman you need a female superhero to come along and he gave this wonderful quote about after he pitched wonder woman to to the comic book publishers saying wonder woman is psychological propaganda for the new kind of woman who should, I believe, rule the world. There isn't enough love in the male organism to run this world peacefully. Woman's body 
contains twice as many love-generating organs and endocrine systems as the male. What woman lacks is the dominance or self-assertive power to put over and enforce her love desires. Well, that's why they dressed Wonder Woman up in a very powerful way. Wonder Woman, even to um, a sort of 12-year-old child in Cork getting the first <laughs> senses of, of attraction to women, I was attracted to this quite sort of dominant uh, character. Wonder Woman was moulded out of clay. Do you know her origin? No. She was she grew up on Paradise Island, and her mother is Hippolyte. And she was written very bizarrely. Uh, she, you know, we all know the sort of origin story of Batman yeah. and Superman, Krypton, and Gotham. Yeah, yeah. Wonder Woman came out of this sort of what was known as feminist utopian literature of the 1920s, when anthropologists believed that sort of maybe in the past. Not only was there a patriarchal society, but there was also matriarchal societies. And these islands would have been left over with just women on them, ruling themselves and being, you know, very uh, modern and so on and so forth. So anyway, that is where Wonder Woman came along. And he he made a fortune, right? He made a fortune until suddenly the 1950s came along. And comics were, he actually died, sorry, he died three years into the run. His two uh, wives, we'll say, went on to live together for another four decades, (laughs) raising the kids. But uh, Wonder Woman sort of fell out of of fashion because in the 1950s, there was a a congressional hearing again on the sort of the, whether comics were dangerous. And that introduced a code, a comics code, it was called. And at the time, Wonder Woman was stripped of her powers and she was no longer interested in fighting Nazis and uh, saving okay. the day, but it was only interested in whether Steve Trevor, her boyfriend, was going to propose to her. All right, but then this happened. Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman. All the world's waiting for you And the power you possess In your satin tights Fighting for your rights The actress was Linda Carter, but in the satin tights fighting for the red, (laughs) white and blue. That's exactly what it was for me as a young kid in Cork, uh, you know, and getting those strange sensations (laughs) as I looked at pictures of Wonder Woman. The reason why she wears the red, white and blue, actually, is because the concept was America would be the only place in the world where women would get an equal footing and that's why she she oh, represents right. that. Okay. But yeah, so Wonder Woman came back in force in the 1970s and now finally an Israeli actress is bringing her to the big screen for the first time. Well, Linda Carter's probably about 87 so couldn't play the part. <laughs> uh, James uh, Dempsey of Newstalk.com every Friday at this time with uh, some odd facts and figures for me. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But, of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.